Good morning. Welcome again to our online worship service here at South Suburban Christian Church. Thank you for joining us. If you're joining us on our online.church platform or if you're listening to us uh, on YouTube or by podcast uh, on SoundCloud or wherever it is that you get your podcasts, thank you for taking time to be here. This week we are in our fourth week of a five-week series, Dangerous Prayers. And uh, we've been looking at an old Celtic prayer. Uh, and from that prayer, uh, discerning from God's word, how probably all prayers, but certainly these prayers, are dangerous. For we are asking God for some things that God will give us. And there will be a response from us to that gift as we go forward as the people of God. If you would, I'd like to begin our time uh, as we pray together. If you would pray along with me this Celtic prayer, these dangerous petitions, this dangerous prayer. Let us pray. Lord of our heart, give us vision to inspire us, that working or resting, we may always think of you. Lord of our heart, give us light to guide us, that at home or abroad we may always walk in your way. Lord of our heart, give us wisdom to direct us, that thinking or acting we may always discern right from wrong. Lord of our heart, give us courage to strengthen us, that amongst friends or enemies we may always proclaim your justice. Lord of our heart, give us trust to console us, that hungry or well-fed we may always rely on your mercy. Amen. This morning we're looking at that fourth petition, Lord of our heart, give us courage. Give us courage to strengthen us, that amongst friends or enemies we may always proclaim your justice. Uh, the text that I'd like to share with you today comes from the book of Joshua in your Old Testament. Uh, if you would turn, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Joshua, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, the very first chapter, and from there, just the first nine verses. So if you would, uh, let us read along together. Uh, from God's word. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. So we're talking about courage today. The courage of God's people is always connected to God's vision. That's the first point that I want to share with you today. Now, I want to take a few moments and set this scripture from Joshua chapter 1 into context. Now, the people have been wandering in the wilderness for over 40 years. And they have finally arrived at the River Jordan to cross into the promised land for the second time. Yes, my brothers and sisters, this isn't the first time that they've come to the River Jordan. It's the second time. Back in Numbers chapter 13, the people had come to these very same banks of the Jordan River, and they had set their sights on the promised land. Now, the first time that they came to the Jordan River, they were being led by Moses. The second time, now, Moses has died, as we read in the opening verses, and Joshua is now their leader. Now, on the first occasion, uh, God had told Moses to have the chiefs of all of the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the promised land and scope everything out there, to prepare. And ironically, they went to spy in that land for 40 days themselves. So they'd been in the wilderness 40 years. They spent 40 days in the land spying and trying to get a handle on what awaited them as they crossed over. They had heard uh, the words from Moses when he had said that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. But in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27, when the spies come back, they also report something else. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look at at, uh, uh, Numbers chapter 13, uh, I I love this. Um, uh, Turn there with me. Numbers 13, beginning in verse 27. So they, they've talked about how the land is flowing with milk and honey, and they even show uh, Moses and the people the fruit of the land. And then in verse 28, they say, however. Isn't it funny how that one little word, however, can kind of change everything? However. Man, 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 that word however is when things start getting messed up. However, these spies say to Moses, The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Enoch there. Now, this is the the descendants of the Nephilim, or the great giants, the great heroes uh, that we read back in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, it is from those people that many think that perhaps Goliath, uh, the giant that confronted David, was a descendant. In verse 29, The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. That's the area to the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites all dwell in the hill country. And this is the middle part of the promised land. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Now, this is the Sea of Galilee or the eastern side. They never ever get over to the western coast of the Mediterranean where, of course, they'll find out eventually the Philistines dwell. (laughs) Well... Maybe that, however, was something to pay attention to. I don't know. However, they go on to say, 
at that last verse in uh, uh, Numbers chapter 13. When we stand in the midst of these people that we're going to have to confront, that we're going to have to do battle, uh, we are nothing but mere grasshoppers in their sight. (laughs) Well, for this lack of faith, uh, for this extension of the word however, uh, for this this, uh, abandonment of all courage that they would need, Uh, that they would need to go into uh, uh, the promised land, God says to them, all right then, you guys are just going to have to go back into the wilderness. You're obviously not ready for the challenge that lays ahead of you. Not because you're not ready in your own strength or in your own preparation, but because you haven't placed your faith and your trust in me. You haven't received the courage that I offer. And so every, the, 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 the punishment of God, and you can read about that in Numbers chapter 14, the following chapter, because of their lack of courage, every single one of them will have to die before God allows the people to come into the promised land again, except for Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two that showed courage, and they would be the only two that would be allowed to come into the promised land. You know, I think all of this is such a human response to to life, Uh, not only in the fear, but in what happens next. Because if you go back and you keep reading in Numbers chapter 13, the Israelites were so embarrassed by their disobedience, uh, they were so embarrassed by their failure to trust God, that they said to themselves, okay, okay, um, we know that you've told us to go back into the wilderness, but we're going to go ahead and cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. and, and even after God had said to them, don't do that, you, you, you've missed your chance, just, just go back into the wilderness, your children will be the one uh, with whom I complete this work. Uh, they <clears throat> choose not to listen to God, and foolishly, thinking that it's courage, isn't it interesting how sometimes foolishness can be confused with courage, they enter into the land, do battle with the Amalekites and the Canaanites, and are ultimately defeated terribly. You see, I think the terrifying thing in this text <clears throat> that I may, maybe I shouldn't share it with you. You consider it in your own mind. The terrifying thing here is that once God has called us to do something and we refuse, there is a strong possibility that the opportunity will just simply pass. God was ready to take the people of Israel into the promised land, but their fears, their lack of courage overwhelmed them. God said, okay, we'll see if we can't do better with your children. And then because of regret, because of maybe their own pride, uh, the people tried to do this great task without the blessing of God in their own strength. I I guess what I'm trying to say is this. When God says go, you got to go right then. Otherwise, you may never get the opportunity again. And that's sobering. That's terrifying, isn't it? And God said that everyone who was alive uh, would not survive to see the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. And when God says those things, God means those things. Well, now in Joshua 1, the children have returned. Everyone else has died except for Joshua and Caleb, according to God's word. 
And I want you to look with me at Joshua 1, uh, verses 2 and 3. It's really almost comical to me as it begins. Um, uh, Moses, my servant, is dead. Why is that comical? Because that really is the pickup after we leave Numbers chapter 13. You, You could take those two stories and put them together. God's word always comes to pass. And so it was here. And Joshua, the book of Joshua, actually begins picking up from that. Okay, Moses is dead. All the people are dead except for Joshua and Caleb. Now we're ready to continue the story. Now we're ready to continue the work that God has placed before us. And God says this in verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. They know what their parents had told them. They, they remember the reports of the spies, the giants, uh, the great tasks, uh, the cities walled and, and very large. We know of all of the problems, the great tasks that lie in the midst of our life, don't we? That which lies ahead for our church, for our nation, as a human race. And every situation where we are called to do great things, there is one constant. There will always be opposition. The opposition may be giants. It may be walled cities. The opposition that is the real opposition, though, is the lack of courage in God's people, the fear that we allow to paralyze ourselves with. You see, that, my friends, is where courage is necessary. To to be able to look into the future, know the struggles, know the opposition, but be willing to go anyway. Now, if you look through these first nine verses in the first chapter of Joshua, uh, there's sort of a flow back and forth as we see God and Joshua talking to one another. As a matter of fact, when I sort of outlined this in, in, in my Bible, I, I used different color highlighters to be able to pick these things up uh, to get a handle on what was going on in this text. And there are things that God says he will do. There are things that God says the Hebrew people are to do. And then God offers some insight as to how they will be able to do what God has called them to do. Now, we've already said that it is only in following God's vision that we will need God's courage. That was our first point. But the second point that I want to share with you is the courage of God's people is not the absence of fear, but it is the presence of God. Look look with me again at verse 5. No one shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now, now how many of us, if, if we could hear the audible voice of God say that to us, we would be able to take on the whole world. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. Now, now when Paul was writing those words in in, uh, his letter to the church at Rome, uh, he was referencing the tremendous suffering that the Christians in Rome were enduring uh, during the reign of Emperor Nero. And what was happening 
is, is that the rules of the government, the, the persecution of Nero, who had started out persecuting the Jews and then had begun to persecute the Christians, uh, uh, really had spilled over into the church. And the church now in Rome, as Paul is writing to them, is struggling with the context of what they're in in that empire, and it is fracturing the very church itself. And what it's doing is it's pitting against uh, uh, the, the, the church itself a division that's really arbitrary. That the Jewish Christians didn't like the Gentile Christians, and the Gentile Christians didn't like the Jewish Christians. And these divisions of ethnicity and race weren't something that was birthed or born in the church, but it was something that had come from the policies of Emperor Nero and the Roman government. And the policies and the practices of the government had begun to negatively impact the church. Does that sound familiar? So Paul in Romans is reminding them of their unity, that their unity is in Christ, not the Emperor Nero. Their unity is in the cross, not their ethnicity as Jews or Gentiles. And he reminds them that their ability to, to, to survive, and, and not just survive Roman persecution, but to thrive in the midst of Roman persecution, is not in their efforts, but it is in the fact that God is with them. So who can be against them? And in the same way, echoing back through the centuries from the time Paul writes to the Romans to when Joshua and the people of Israel stand at the banks of the Jordan River, they too are reminded that the victories that are ahead will not be a result of the military prowess of the Hebrew people, but because it is God who fights them fights for them. When God says this phrase, just as I was with Moses, that was a pretty powerful phrase. You see, Joshua and all of the people of Israel would have known the story of Moses. They would have known about the Egyptian decree that every male child of the Hebrew people needed to be put to death and how Moses was saved from that royal decree and, 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 and put aloft in a reed basket in the Nile River. How a princess of Pharaoh's court found him and raised him as her own and how he rose to a position of prominence in the Egyptian Pharaonic household. How he took the life of an Egyptian who he saw beating a Hebrew slave mercilessly how he had to flee into the hill countries, how it was there that he encountered God in a burning bush, and how God called him that he would be the one through whom the Hebrew people would be released from their slavery. They knew about the story of the plagues and how Moses and Aaron had the boldness to walk into the courts of Pharaoh and demand that the infrastructure that had supported the Egyptian wealth and the Egyptian economy, that is, is the slavery of the Hebrew people, was going to have to be dismantled and the people set free. Joshua knew the story of how Moses led the Hebrews to the Red Sea and how the Egyptians were bearing down on them with their chariots and weapons of war. And how God parted the sea and led the Hebrews through on dry land and then destroyed the Hebrew army because of his own strength. They knew the story of how Moses had dealt with complaining and stiff-necked people, the attitude of the Hebrew people in the wilderness as uh, they cried and moaned and begged for their days back in slavery because they didn't have enough meat or bread or water. 
You see, they would have known all of those stories. And when God says, I will be with you like I was with Moses, they knew that God had been faithful with Moses. And so God would be faithful with Joshua. It also meant that it wasn't anything that Joshua was going to do on his own strength. And it also meant at the same time that there wasn't anything that through Joshua, God couldn't do. It's what God is saying to South Suburban Christian Church. It's what God is saying to you, a follower of Jesus Christ. It's what God is saying to the whole church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And we have a choice. We can receive the call of God with fear and be paralyzed in our own lives and sent back into the wilderness until our generation passes away. And it will be our children or our grandchildren who do great things for the sake of the gospel. Or we can hear the promise of God and believe it. You know, God uses that phrase that I read, be strong and courageous, three times just in the first nine verses. And he's going to say it a number of times afterwards as well. Many of you may not have ever heard of a guy named Phillips Brooks. He's probably best known these days as the author of the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. But in his day, he was better known as one of America's most popular preachers. As a matter of fact, in his day, he might have been uh, the same prowess and the same popularity as Billy Graham has been in the generation of many of you. He was definitely a great communicator. And Pastor Brooks is known for some of the quotes uh, that might fill your social media platforms and you never knew who he was. But you probably know his quotes. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. I do not pray for a lighter load, but for a stronger back. Character may be manifested in the great moments, but it is made in the small ones. And I suppose on the surface, they may seem like little nice, encouraging things <clears throat> that pastors ought to say until I share with you some particulars about Pastor Brooks's life. He was ordained in the year 1859. Now, if you remember your history... You'll remember that the Civil War began in 19, or I'm sorry, in 1861 and ended in 1865. After the Civil War, historians date what is called Reconstruction, that period of trying to heal a nation and, and how to deal justly with the four million newly freed people in these United States. From 1865 to 1877. Well, Brooks died in 1893. And what may be easy to miss is that this preacher, that many of us have never heard of, but in his day was considered great, served in one of the most difficult and polarizing times in our nation's history. And even though many of us have no clue who he is or how he stands in the midst of other great giants that we may remember, Lord James Bryce who would go on to be the British ambassador to the United States, is quoted as having said, not since Lincoln's assassination has America so widely mourned the loss of a leader 
as they did the death of Pastor Brooks. Brothers and sisters, we find ourselves in an era of division. Our president recently defined these days as an uncivil war. Now, whatever your opinion on matters of politics or or politicians, I think we can all agree that these days demand that we hear and place into work in our lives that admonition from God, be strong and be courageous. Especially in the matters of mission, of vision, to which God is calling us. My third point that I want to share with you today is the courage of God's people is birthed out of God's word. Now, I hope what we've shared is we have shared the context of of Joshua and the people of Israel and, and God's call to them to be courageous as they were seeking the courage of God, like we have prayed in this dangerous prayer. But God never leaves us up in the air. He he doesn't leave us with just uh, philosophical uh, uh, thoughts and ideas. He likes to bring things down to practicality as well. We're not all good at that, but God is good at that. Thus far, we've looked at this text. We've seen what God said he will do. We've seen how God has called us to respond, but God never leaves us empty-handed. For he gives us the very practical and sure way through which we will discover the courage that he's giving to us. Look at verse 8. It's the key verse to this whole section of the book of Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Now, I wanted to think of a way how we could end this message today, how we could give to ourselves some practical ways that we could meditate on God's Word. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk you through a process. I want to give you five steps, first of all, that I think about when it comes to how I meditate on God's Word. And You can write these down if you want. Uh, they're not points of the message, but I think they're especially important as we try to, to put into practice what God is calling us to do as we receive His gift of courage. Number one, when we're called to meditate on God's Word, first of all, you got to read it. I know that sounds simple. you got to read it, and you got to reread it. The second thing is, is you got to believe it. The third step is, is you got to make it a part of yourself. Fuse God's Word into your very being. Absorb it. Become one with it. The fourth step is you have to apply it. You have to look for opportunities in your daily life to apply God's Word. And finally... You have to tell other people about it. You have to talk about it. Those are the five steps that I want to share with you. Now, there might be a step before step one, and and that is is you have to make time to meditate on God's Word, isn't it? I I try to do that in my own life the first thing I do in the morning. I, I don't always get it done the way I want to. And I find that in those days when I haven't taken time to meditate on God's Word, my day's lost. Every night, our family gathers together around 7 o'clock, unless I have some sort of meeting. Then we try to do it a little earlier, 
But we gather together as a family every night, every single night at 7 o'clock for a time of prayer, for singing, may the Lord help us on that, and reading God's Word. That's just our discipline. That's just what we do. It's just something you have to say, we're going to do this. Now, I'm not telling you that you need to put together a worship service for your family or if you live alone that you have to spend an hour uh, reading God's Word or doing Bible study, although that's not a bad thing. But surely all of us can take 15 minutes a day to spend simply reading and meditating on God's Word. Is anyone going to tell me that God isn't willing to give us 15 minutes, 10 minutes a day to read and meditate on his word. I I, want to ask, if anybody out there can say, I don't have time to spend 10 or 15 minutes, raise your hand. See, I don't see a single hand being raised out there. Well, you might ask yourself, or you might ask me, Pastor Ike, I just don't know where to start. How do I begin? Well, start with reading the Psalms, if nothing else. Read, Read one Psalm a day. That'll take you 150 days. Read it and reread it. Read it in the morning and read it at night again. Or begin with the book of Proverbs. Most folks like practical stuff. I like practical stuff. Begin reading the book of Proverbs. It's filled with practical stuff. Just this morning, now now today that we're recording this, uh, you're watching it on Sunday or whenever you're watching it, we're recording it on Tuesday. And I, this morning, Tuesday morning, got up early, and I read chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. What I did is, is I just simply read it, and then I reread it. These first seven verses in Proverbs, turn your Bibles there, if you would, just for a moment. Proverbs chapter 1. I read it, and I reread it. This is simply a prelude to the whole book of Proverbs. It is the key to understanding the whole rest of the book of Proverbs. It's God's step-by-step instructions, if you will, on how to live each day, how to understand His wisdom, how to make His wisdom and His knowledge, which then leads to courage your own. I especially liked it because the first thing I noticed when I opened this morning to Proverbs chapter 1 is the very first phrase, to know wisdom. What was last Sunday's message? (laughs) I hope that we don't think, (laughs) I hope you don't leave last week's message thinking that when we pray for God's wisdom, we just have to sit there and God will just dump his wisdom out and it'll just land on our heads and go through our skulls and take up residence in our brains. That's not how it works. God has given us the source of his wisdom, and the predominant source, the primary source, some might even say the only source, and I'm all right with that, is God's word. He's given us his word. He's given us his heart and his mind. I believed what I was reading. That was the second step, remember? I'm going to think about these verses the rest of the day. I'm going to make it a very part of myself, seeking to integrate it into my being. And and, and if you're looking down there now at Proverbs 1, I notice that in Proverbs uh, 1, verses 1 through 4, it's pretty easy. You don't don't need to be a Bible scholar to see this, is that God is saying, here are the things that that I want you to do. 
to know wisdom, to understand, to receive instruction, to give prudence. And then in verses 5 and 6, it's easy to see that how do I do those things? By doing what's in verse 5 and verse 6. Hear and listen to those who are wiser than me. Increase in my learning. Seek understanding by going after guidance, looking to other people to help me, to, to understand a proverb and saying, it is the words of the wise. It's those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ who are also seeking to grow that sharpen me as well. And then I notice in verse 7, that summary, that key, that key to life, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I'm going to think about that the rest of the day. I'm going to look at opportunities today to apply these Proverbs in my life. Now, I already told you that it's Tuesday. Today, after we, were finished, after we complete this recording, I have about six more meetings to go through before the day is done. And I'm going to look for opportunities to bring to bear these things that God is speaking to me and to us through these first seven verses in Proverbs. I'm going to figure out ways to, 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 to make them a part of the conversations that I'm having. And even if, if I'm not able to do that, I'm thinking about how these verses are manifesting themselves in my experiences throughout the rest of this day. And I'm going to try that final step to incorporate them, to talk about them in my conversations. You know, these meetings and all of the meetings all of us engage in have an impact on who we are. They, they, they change us. The conversations we have with people, the, the conversations we have with our employees or our employers, and the conversations, many of them, that I'll be involved in today are going to be very important conversations in the lives of those with whom I'm talking and in, in the life of the planning and work of this congregation. And shouldn't God's word, shouldn't God's wisdom, shouldn't God's courage be in the midst of all of that? And it all began from that 15 minutes that I spent this morning in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I think what we've learned today is that the courage God gives to us begins in my heart. In my heart. You may not know the name Oscar Romero. He was a uh, archbishop, a, a pastor in the Roman Catholic Church in El Salvador, and he sought to, to, to square off and deface the injustices of the government upon the poor in El Salvador. The, the, the poor were being killed, their, their daughters kidnapped, their terrible things being done to, to, to families there. And Oscar Romero stood to confront those powers courageously. On one day when he was offering the Lord's Supper at a worship service, some soldiers of the government came in and murdered him as he was holding the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation in his very hands, preparing it for the people. Romero said this, how easy it is to denounce structural injustice and institutionalized violence, social sin. And it is true, this sin is everywhere. But what are the roots of social sin? And he answers that question. 
and the heart of every human being. Present-day society is a sort of an anonymous world in which no one is willing to admit guilt, but everyone else is responsible. Because of this, salvation begins with the human person, with human dignity, with savoring every person from sin. Individually, there are among us here no two sinners alike. Each one has committed his or own shameful deeds, and yet we want to cast our guilt on the other and hide our own sin. I must take off my mask. I, too, am one of them, and I need to beg God's pardon because I have offended God and society. This is the call of Christ. I think one of the most courageous things that you or I could do today is to submit our lives, to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. Have you made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life? It is a courageous thing to say, I need your grace, O God. Say yes to this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept him as Lord and Savior? It is a courageous act that you can do because God has said, I am with you. God has great things planned for you in your day-to-day to touch people's lives, to serve his whole body, the church, to be a voice of reason and compassion in this world. Don't allow fear to paralyze you. But with God's courage, meditating on his word, change the world right where you are. Amen.